Today's scripture is 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Keith MacMillan. And I currently serve as the executive pastor here at Redemption Tucson. However, I would like to make you aware of something, uh, a change that's coming for me and my family in the next coming months here. For some of you, it's not going to be a shock. You were here when we announced this back in June. Uh, but for others, you were traveling, you were away for the summer. So we want to make sure that you knew. Uh, over the last decade or so, uh, my wife and I have both had hearts that have been growing for church planting and that work. Um, and we uh, came to Redemption Tucson with the intent and the purpose of learning from church planters, from Dave and Kira Goffney, who planted this congregation. And so we've been here for three years preparing our hearts and getting ready. Um, and we've sensed that the Lord is really calling us back to our hometown, Sacramento, California, where we're going to be planting. Um, and so... Uh, over the last year and a half, two years, we've both gone through some official processes, both with the local elders here uh, and some church planting organizations to confirm that calling, uh, and we are moving forward with our plans, and we will be sent from Redemption Tucson in December, just so you know. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. We love you all so much. Uh, we love our time here. Um, one of the official processes that we went through is something called an assessment. And it's essentially, it's like a two or three day job interview. <laughs> um, so if you get nervous for, you know, one hour job interview, imagine the 16 hour job interview, right? Uh, they ask you all sorts of questions about your life and your ministry and your family. Um, they really want to help you confirm whether or not this is what the Lord is calling you to. Um, and I've felt this tension in these assessment situations you know, how confident should I be, right? If I totally lack confidence, this is what happens. I just go into anxiety mode. I'm like, what am I doing here? Should I even be here? But then on the other hand, I don't want to be too confident because if you're too confident, you just kind of look like a jerk, right? You're arrogant. And, um, you know, modern psychology has identified this problem pretty aptly. Um, it's called it some version of self-confidence, self-esteem, Right, every year in the United States alone, over 20 million copies of self-help books are published. 
Uh, we can do a quick Google search or a TikTok, I'm sure, right now, and find nine different ways that you can boost your self-esteem, 15 tips for self-confidence, eight self-care routines. Wait till you see number four, right? Um, there's more and more and more. We get more and more content uh, about how we can manage self-esteem and self-confidence. And here's the problem that I found. Every single one of those things is rooted in and focused on self. It's all about self. And when my confidence is focused on myself, when it's rooted in myself, I get tossed to and fro like I'm in the waves. When I do well, I become arrogant. I think, man, I'm pretty great. I'm God's gift to the world. When I do poorly, I'm anxious. I think, why do I even try? What am I doing here? And this is not really limited to job interviews. I'm sure you've felt this in job interviews if you've had them. This is something that pervades every part of our lives, right? Um, you do this on your volleyball team. You do this uh, in your weekly staff meeting. You do this at family dinner tables. Everywhere we go, we have a tendency to become preoccupied with ourselves and our own performance, and it leads to these places of arrogance if we do well and anxiety if we do bad, right? I think we bring this dynamic into our relationship with God as well. See, some of us are good at religion. I'm just going to say it. Some of you are good at religion, right? You're disciplined. You, you like schedules. You like checklists. You actually are good at routines. You like reading and enjoy it, right? It comes naturally to you. You make time in your day to read and pray. You make plenty of money. You give a lot away. And unfortunately, and that's rooted in our performance, it leads to self-righteous, arrogant Christians, Many of us, I would put myself in this bucket, are bad at religion. Right? We lose focus. You've already lost focus. <laughs> we're five minutes in. You've already lost focus. You're looking at something else. Um, we're quickly distracted. It's hard to pay attention. You have a hard time keeping routines and disciplines. You've struggled with the same sins since high school. You always feel like you could give more, pray more, do more, go more. And unfortunately, this performance-driven religion leads to anxious, guilt-ridden, doubting Christians. We need confidence. It's important to have confidence in our lives. We certainly need confidence in our relationship with God. But the question is, can we be confident and not arrogant? If so, how? The, po the passage that we're looking at this morning is written by a guy named John, the Apostle John, to new believers, and he had this very purpose in mind. We as Christians can have a humble confidence. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our text. Father, I pray for a humble confidence. I know that the words that are coming out of my mouth here um, are not to make me look good. We want you to look good. We want uh, to open the scriptures here this morning, and we want to hear your voice, not Keith's voice. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you empower these words to come to life for us. We pray that you would move in our hearts, that when we open this, we would meet Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are closing out 1 John today. We've been in 1 John for a minute. Uh, we're in chapter 5. We're going through verses 6 through 21. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring a copy of God's word to you. Uh, if you don't own a copy at home, 
This is our gift to you. Please hang on to it. We want everyone to have a copy of God's word available to them. We also have copies in Spanish. If that's your heart language, your preferred language, please ask for a Bible uh, in Spanish and we'll get one of those to you. So John, he wants us to be confident. He wants us to have a confidence without arrogance. He wants a humble confidence. And it's rooted in these three things. One, Christ's work. Two, God's will. And three, our witness, okay? Humble confidence in those three things. First of all, Christ's work. Let's pick up in verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you were confused by this section, you're not alone. It's very confusing. There's lots of, there's water, and there's blood, and there's spirit, and there's testimonies, and what's going on here? Um, He's using the language here of a courtroom, testimonies, witnesses that are called to trial to present a truth claim, evidence for a truth claim. What is the truth claim that's on trial here? Look at verse 11. This gives us a clue. This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So here's the claim. The claim that's on trial is that Jesus is the divine son of God given to us that we might have eternal life in him. And John calls three witnesses to the stand And what these all have in common, they are historical moments, historical events that happen that give us the evidence to know that Jesus is, in fact, the divine Son of God who came to give us eternal life. So let's look at the first witness that he calls to the stand, the water, the water. I believe, as do many commentators, that this is referring to Jesus's baptism. It's not obvious right away, but the baptism... Uh, is the first testimony that's on the stand because this is the moment when uh, Jesus is publicly identified, his identity is publicly revealed as the son of God. In the gospel of Mark, it says that the, God, the clouds were parted in the moment that Jesus was baptized and that a dove, uh, the spirit of God actually, descended like a dove on Jesus and a voice, the voice of God the father came from the heavens and said, This is my beloved son. So we get the first piece of evidence that Jesus is in fact the the divine son of God. It's that God the father from the heavens declared it publicly for all to see, right? That's the first piece of evidence. Jesus is in fact the divine son of God given to us that we might have eternal life. The second that John calls to the witness stand is the blood, the blood. This is the crucifixion. This is the moment that Jesus died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sin. The gospel of Mark, again, says that when Jesus died, the curtain that separated uh, the Holy of Holies and the temple was torn in two, that uh, likewise, the separation between God and man was torn, and we were able to to be brought together with God as one. Uh, And even in that moment, a Roman centurion, someone who does not know God in that moment, declared publicly at the crucifixion, truly, this man is the son of God. So we get evidence number two, Jesus is who he said he was. He is the divine son of God who came that we might have eternal life. And then John presents the third witness to the stand. It's the spirit, 
Now, again, I think thinking as these, uh, these are historical moments, these are historical events that are happening, this is the giving of the Spirit to people who follow Christ, to Jesus' disciples. This is the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, and it is the same Spirit that lives in you and me if we are, in fact, followers of Jesus. It's the same Spirit that confirms within our spirit that we are truly children of God adopted by him if we're in him. We hear his voice, and it says the same thing that the water and the blood say. Jesus is, in fact, the divine Son of God given that we might have eternal life. So John presents this evidence, and it seems that he is very confident that this testimony about Jesus is true, and that if we believe this testimony, we will have eternal life. Read what he says in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It does not get much more cut and dry than this verse right here. We are given exactly the truth. Um, we live in an age of pluralism, of all roads lead up the mountain uh, to the same destination, that all religions are basically the same. But John does not take that route. He says, as plainly as he possibly can, if you want the life, it only comes in Jesus. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have life. And all of these witnesses, the water, the blood, the spirit, they have something in common here. All of these things are things that Christ has done for us. None of them are anything to do with what we have done for him. Do you see that? None of them. None of them have anything to do with how good you are or how good I am at religious activities. None of them have anything to do with how smart or reasonable or wise or rational we are. None of them have anything to do with you. They all have everything to do with Christ's work for us. There is no room for arrogance in this. We have to be humble, but we can certainly be confident. There's three witnesses agreeing to the same thing. We can be confident in Christ's work. But we can also be confident, number two, in God's will. Let's be confident in God's will. Join me in verse 13. It says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, once again, John is writing this whole letter. This is the purpose statement of the entire letter. He's writing this for the very purpose that we would know, that we would be confident, that we would be certain that we have eternal life if we believe in the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence, he, he says, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. When I was in campus ministry, uh, every year there was some version of this question presented to me by college students. And I don't think you outgrow this question. What is God's will for my life, right? What major should I pick? Who should I date? Who should I marry? Um, what city should I live in? Uh, should I get a dog? The answer is no, you should not get a dog. Don't do that. And that's the word of Keith, not the word of the Lord. Um, 
I don't think we outgrow this question. In fact, I started by telling you that we've been through a process, Desiree and I, of discerning God's will for our lives, right? This is an important thing for us to tune into what the Spirit might be saying to us and how he's directing us. But I don't think that's what John is talking about here when he says praying in accordance with God's will. No, I think what he is uh, talking about here is not knowing our own future and praying for that to happen. He's talking ultimately about how we can be shaped in God's ultimate purpose for his world, the ultimate aim of God's world. Well, how do we know what the end of history is? How do we know what God's ultimate purpose is? He gives us a clue. In this passage, he talks about something called eternal life over and over and over again. Seven times he talks about life or eternal life. This is God's ultimate aim for you. It's for me, for the whole creation. It's life. Life is the purpose that God has for his world. Life forever. Life in a restored creation where death is banished. Life with no more pain or suffering. His ultimate aim for the cosmos, for the end of history, is you and me living forever in a restored world that's ruled by King Jesus. It's heaven come down to earth. So I believe John is encouraging us once again to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our own individual future, and instead to be shaped by God's ultimate purposes for his creation, eternal life. How do we do that? How do we become shaped in God's will for the world? Well, what he says here is we ought to pray. We ought to pray with confidence that the end of the story, eternal life, somehow would break in now into the middle of history. And John's not the first person to instruct us to pray this way. If this feels unfamiliar, how about this prayer? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus's prayer, the Lord's prayer, is that heaven would come down to earth, that God's will, his ultimate aim for human history, eternal life would come now here in the present. It would break in. That's Jesus's prayer for us, right? We can pray with confidence and ask God to restore brokenness wherever we see it when we're shaped this way. God, let the lonely experience community on earth as it is in heaven. God, let the brokenhearted rejoice on earth as it is in heaven. God, let the hungry feast on earth as it is in heaven. God, let the sick be healed on earth as it is in heaven. Let the blind see, let the dead live. This is what God wants us to do. Our confidence is not built in God's will and the self-focused discerning of what God would want us to do personally, we have to be humble, but it is secure in the reality of God's ultimate finish line, eternal life. So we can be confident, humble and confident at the same time, okay? Lastly, we're meant to have a humble confidence in our witness. All right, if you thought the water and the blood stuff was confusing, mm, just wait. Put up verse 16. Let's confuse everybody. Uh, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, 
and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Thanks, John. You had a chance to just finish strong, man. You had the, the sun and the life stuff, but here we go. Um, is, this, is this verse saying that there's such thing as mortal sins, like unforgivable sins that if you, you know, watch out, because if you stumble and you commit this one sin, you're doomed, right? No, I don't think that's, that's what this is saying. Um, commentators are split on what this means it is very tricky to try and figure out what exactly John is talking about. It was probably readily apparent to those who read this letter what he's talking about. But it seems like the general consensus is the sin that leads to death is unbelief throughout your life. So if you continue in unbelief, if you know the truth about who Jesus is, and you continue in unbelief all the way until you die, and you die without believing and putting your faith and trust in Jesus, that's the sin that ultimately leads to death. But I don't want to get too hung up, too caught up on the specifics of what this side, because it's a side note, it's a side comment here that he's making, um, to miss the point of what John is trying to encourage us to do in this. The first thing we have to recognize is who is he talking about when he says a brother can, committing a sin not leading to death? Um, normally, when we read brother in the New Testament, it's talking about someone who's put their faith in Jesus right? It's a brother or sister in Christ. But there's a clue here that makes me and um, the commentator John Stott, who I trust, uh, think that actually this is talking about someone who does not have faith in Jesus. Look at what it says. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Now, if you remember, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And so John is not going to go back on what he just said a couple of verses prior. What he's actually talking about here, brothers committing a sin, he's talking about people who do not yet know Christ. He's talking about people who don't follow Jesus. Whether they are committing these sins leading to death or not, that's who he's talking about. Um, and notice what the command and the promise is in this verse. He's saying, uh, ask, ask is the command. And the promise is that God will give life. So John is inviting us to pray for our neighbors, to pray for our family, to pray for our friends and our coworkers and the people that sit next to you and lecture college students and our teammates. He's telling us to pray that they would know Jesus and receive life. Sometimes as Christians, and I'm guilty of this uh, in my campus ministry background, we think that uh, the first step in our witness to people who don't know Christ is that we need to have the memorized speech. We have to have really good words. We have to have really good questions. Um, uh, we have to engage with people with kind of arguments and defenses for the faith. That's not what John gives us here as the first step in witness. The first step is recognizing that you and I have no control over human hearts. None. We can't change people's hearts or minds, right? It doesn't matter how eloquent your speech is. It doesn't matter how good the booklet is. It doesn't matter how well-trained you are in apologetics. The first step is praying to the God who actually can give life. That's what we have to do. And how do we know that this 
is, will work? How do we be confident that God actually will give life? Because someone prayed for you and God gave you life. Someone prayed for me and God gave me life. Maybe it was your mom or a grandma or a cousin or a friend. Maybe it was your neighbor. Maybe you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus yet and someone here is praying for you. When people pray, God hears and he gives life. That's the first step. It does not depend on us. Be humble, but we can be confident because God gives life. Well, we can also have a humble and confident witness through living a distinct life. Read what it says in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding. So has he given us understanding so that we might give all the understanding to other people, uh, share all of our good knowledge and wisdom with others? No, this is the reason he gave us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John talks over and over and over and over again about knowledge. It's one of the main themes of this book. Uh, 33 times he talks about knowing and knowledge, and I didn't even count the stuff about truth. Um, I think it's helpful for us here to make a distinction between intellectual fact-gathering knowledge and personal knowledge, okay? Uh, This is what intellectual fact-gathering sounds like. My wife, Desiree, has brown hair and brown eyes. She grew up in Roseville, California. She likes to read historical fiction and young adult novels. She has a neurobiology degree from UC Davis. That's intellectual fact-gathering knowledge, right? But you don't know Desiree from fact-gathering. It's not the same thing as relational, personal knowledge. I know her through our interactions, through our words, through our shared experiences, through stories of her past, through shared hopes and dreams and frustrations and fears. I know her because I have a personal relationship with her, right? When John talks about knowing him who is true, put verse 20 back up, please. Knowing him who is true, this is not fact gathering, this is personal knowledge. We can know the God who is truth. It's experiential. He speaks to us in his word. He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We speak to him. We share our hopes and our dreams in prayer. We share our frustrations and our fears and our anxieties. We share our lives with Christ. He's not a set of theological facts for us to memorize. He's not a set of doctrines to ascribe to. He's a person. He wants relationship with us. And John says that the very purpose that Jesus has come is that we might know him in this way. And there's something that begins to take place, folks, in your life, in your heart, when you know Jesus this way, you become like Jesus. We become in him who is true. And it begins to transform us. We begin to demonstrate and embody what Jesus is and what he is like to the people around us. Our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends start to see that there's something different. There's something refreshingly distinct about the way that we live our lives. John says in in verse 18, we don't keep on sinning. He says in verse 21, 
We keep ourselves from the dominant cultural narratives and idols that are sucking people away to uh, partisan politics and different things. We keep ourselves from idols. We live with a deep understanding of what is true and what is good and what is right, and that's attractive to the people around us. That's attractive to people who don't know Christ. They see in a world of polarized politics that we are committed to listening to one another. They see in a world that's getting increasingly more anxious that we're hopeful and we're prayerful as a people. They see that in a world that is captivated by consumerism that we are more and more generous and content with what we have. That we're radically generous. People want life. They want to know the God who gives life. People want truth. They want to know the God who is true. And we can show them through living a refreshingly distinct life. But again, it doesn't depend on you. It's God living in you. So be humble, but be confident. So back to the original question. Can we be humble, or can we be confident, I should say, without being arrogant? Is that possible? Yes. And as you probably gathered, humility is the key in all of this, right? C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, lowering your self-esteem. It's thinking of yourself less. We can have a humble confidence in our relationship with God because it's not about us. It's about Christ's work on the cross. We can have a humble confidence in praying for God's will to come in the world because it's not about our own future. It's about God's ultimate aim for the creation. We can have a humble confidence in our witness to people who don't know Christ because ultimately it's not about us. We're not changing people's hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work already. It is not about us. It is all about Jesus. Let's live a life of humble confidence in our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Father God, help us to live in a way Um, that we are humble and confident. We do want our neighbors to know Christ. Um, We do want to know you better and better. We pray that your Holy Spirit would empower this church, would empower us, each as individuals and collectively as a community, to be a people that is refreshingly distinct. God, change us and transform us. Have your way in us. Let us be able to freely say, even though it might be scary, your will be done, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.